In the name of the Incarnate One, Amen. Merry Christmas. You do know it's still Christmas, right? Yes, good. Thank you. You know. You helped tell the story. But after the story was told, on December 26th, I get in my car and I turn the radio on to 106.7, the Christmas station. And you know what? No Christmas music. And the next day, I saw a post from an Episcopalian friend on Facebook. He took a picture of a Christmas tree in a dumpster. He labeled it, whoever had this tree has either just left the day after Christmas for a four-month humanitarian mission trip, which is the only way that this would be forgivable, or this person was raised by wolves. (laughs) Not normal wolves. Little Red Riding Hood type wolves. The reality is that the secular Christmas and the sacred Christmas only overlap for about two days, right? The secular Christmas lures us into malls and online shopping carts in mid-November, maybe early November these days, and ends promptly on Christmas night, while the sacred Christmas begins only after we've snuffed all four of our Advent candles on that last Sunday before Christmas and turned our attention to Christmas Eve worship and music and the pageant. This sacred season of Christmas continues for 12 days. There is one secular Christmas carol that got that part right, right? These 12 days align in some way with the time that passed between the birth of Christ and the visit of the Magi. The Magi and their star being the capstone of the greatest story ever told. So we're halfway through. On this sixth day of Christmas, let's take a moment to talk about that greatest story and what we know of it. The story of the Incarnation is the heart and soul of our Christian faith. But where did we come by that story? Well, first of all, people who knew Jesus or knew people who knew Jesus wrote stories down about him, told stories about him. Some say that there may have been hundreds of Gospels at one point, first century stories recorded about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, over the years, four of them surfaced as the most complete and authentic narratives. And in the second century, they became our four canonical or official Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them treats Jesus' birth differently, but each does what they can to help us to know Jesus better. Now, when my friend Pam, who's the rector of Emmanuel Church in Boston, when Pam wants to know people better, she asks them this great question. She asks, so where were you born and what's happened since? For the most part, the gospel writers are trying to answer that question for us on Jesus' behalf. Where was he born? And what has happened since? Mark skips the nativity itself and begins with the story of Jesus' new birth at about age 30, his baptism by John in the Jordan River. It is Jesus' active ministry that matters most to this writer. 
The writer of the Gospel of Matthew wants us to know that Jesus' birth is connected to Adam and Eve and that Jesus is a descendant of King David, from whom the Messiah was to arise. So he spends more words on the genealogy connecting Adam to David and David to Jesus than he does on the actual birth. But he does mention Jesus' birth. And then Matthew does what none of the other gospel writers do. He brings us the magical story of the Magi from the East. Luke has no Magi. But he does have a more elaborate story of Mary and Joseph and the angels that visited them, and Elizabeth and Zechariah and their angels, and of course the shepherds and more angels. Together, Matthew and Luke give us all the components, well, a lot of the components, we made some more of them up, but most of the components of our Christmas pageant, a story that even the secular Christmas traditions and carols have drawn from. But today, today in the prologue of the Gospel of John, we have before us a story unlike all the others. The writer of the Gospel of John pans out wider and shows us that Jesus did not start in a river or in a manger. Jesus started before anything else started. John launches us into where Jesus began and what has happened since by starting before time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning there was Christ, and the Christ was with God, and the Christ was God. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The Greek word, Logos, used in the original Greek text of John, has traditionally been translated in English as the word. But English doesn't actually have a word that adequately expresses the same thing as logos. Someone asked me, maybe at this time last year, if logos could be translated as the story. And I loved that. So I went looking and sifting through all the possible translations, and I didn't exactly find story, but I did find something that to me is quite similar. That is, if you see God as the author of all that is, which I do. Logos can be translated as the utterance of God. The utterance of God. If the baby in the manger is the Logos, the utterance of God, who was present since before time, was with God and was God, if that is who arrived in a manger, succumbing to the vulnerability of being human so that we might have God dwelling with us and among us, well, that is a story that nothing, nothing of the secular Christmas can hold a candle to. When the Gospel of John chose to begin, not with Jesus' ministry, nor with Jesus' conception and birth, but with a chapter that precedes Genesis, John was giving us the gift of a wide-angle lens on the history and reality of love as the very first thing. The radio stations may have grown tired of our carols, 
and trees may have hit the dumpster too early. But nothing we humans can do can derail the divine utterance that has been with us since the beginning of time. We cannot derail that. It is too powerful. But we can choose to either ignore it or become a part of it. And we can choose to take advantage of this sacred time when the commercial world is all done with their secular holiday and we can seep ourselves in our sacred holy days for a bit longer, undistracted by everything that is not divine utterance. And in the midst of these sacred days, we humans begin a new year. What if our New Year's resolutions this year have less to do with habits and more to do with logos? What if we all resolve to seek out the divine utterance in and around us and let it shine more brightly? John tells us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. I propose that we can reinvest in that light, that hope, that story, and that in doing so, divine utterance can and will have the last word. Amen.